Well, good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Eric Baker, and I am the teaching pastor here at Mission Church. And so if you're a guest or visitor, thank you guys for coming and hanging out with us uh, this week. Over the last uh, four weeks or so during the month of July, we take a break from our normal series. And uh, Pastor Justin kind of spearheads a series that's focusing on an issue that we feel like we need to uh, dive deep into in regards to our uh, congregation and our mission and vision here. And so I appreciate him and for Brian for preaching and Jeremy and so on and so forth of last month. And so I've been excited to come back today uh, to the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus. We're actually going to be starting out in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, and reading through chapter 20, verse 3. Um, as you came in today, uh, there was at our info table a little journal uh, like this right here, and inside of it, it has uh, the words that I'm going to be reading along with some blank pages there for you to make notes in. Uh, if you do not have one of these, this is our gift to you. Um, our idea behind this was to place this in each one of our members and attenders' hands. That way you could keep this entire series kind of together. And then these are really helpful whenever we start back to our missional communities, our version of small groups, uh, that you can bring this with you, and it's already got your sermon notes and things like that inside of that. So we will be um, diving right into that. So in Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to be starting out through uh, verse 20 of chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 20. So 19.8, here we go. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain to, or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall, go, shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. The trumpets sound a long blast. They shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God's, God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, chapter 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Today, in kickstarting or restarting our Exodus series from January of 2021 until now, um, we covered the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus. And if you have forgotten or are new to the church or new to the Bible, the book of Exodus is the second book inside of your Bibles. And in that, it is the exit, the leaving of God's people, the Israelites, from the slavery and the bondage of the Egyptians. They've been there for 430 years, and they went there under good circumstances, but by, 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 as some time went on, they end up being, becoming their slaves and being indoctrinated by Egypt itself. And so God begins to hear the cries of his people. He tells this guy named Moses that you're going to be my leader, you're going to be my pastor, my shepherd. You're going to help lead these people out of Egypt because I want these people. These are my people. And so he's going to lead them out. He says over and over again, I'm going to set you free so that you can worship and serve me. And so in the first 15 chapters or so, it is all about salvation. And it's all about how God saved this group of people from these evil people. And then the rest of the book is about really them growing in godliness. How are they becoming more and more set apart as God is set apart? How are God's people going to be set apart? Now, after the, this historical event took place, from then on, it was used throughout history, um, from the Old Testament and even in the New Testament and even currently today, to really be a parable or a parallel to our lives, that you and I were slaves to sin, that we could not come out of the, the bondage of sin, Satan, and death, and so God had to do something. And he did that. He saved us through his son Jesus, led us out of captivity, out of our own hearts, captivity, into a new place, a place with Christ, in a forever place with God in heaven eventually. And so we come to this place inside of this, this chapter where he's really giving them the guidelines of what does it mean to be my people? What does it mean to be the people of God? And so we come to this, this 
place inside of the scripture that is actually very familiar to a lot of people, even if you're not a Christian. If you were to talk to people about what are the Ten Commandments, well, they'll tell you they're, they're, they're the Big Ten, right? They're these commandments, these laws, these rules inside of the Bible, inside maybe even the Old Testament. And if you were to go even further with that, if you were to ask them, even good Christian folk, if I was to ask you today to list out what are the Ten Commandments, could you actually do it? You may be surprised, or maybe not, that most people who claim to be Christians actually can't do that. And so we know this, it's familiar, and yet we have lost its, uh, its power for our lives. What does it mean for us? What are the Ten Commandments? Aren't we New Testament, New Covenant Christians? And so what does this Old Testament law have to do with us? What it actually has a lot to do with us. Now, over the next few weeks, every time that we come in here, we're actually going to read, beginning next week, all of the Ten Commandments. And the hope and the heartbeat is that that will become a rhythm for us, but simultaneously that you as an adult, or you with your kids, or children, or young people, that you will join with us in memorizing these commandments from the Lord. And I think that we'll see why that's important here as we go through this series. Now, for you Bible nerds out here, here's some nuggets for you. The Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue, it means literally the Ten Words. And the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are actually broken up into two groups. At what's called the first table, typically you have the first four commandments. They're all about your relationship with God. They're a vertical approach in your worship and lifestyle with God. And then the last six commandments are very horizontal in nature. They're about our relationship with each other. So how do we worship God first and foremost? And then how do we worship God by being also in relationship with other people? And so you're going to see that over the course of the next 10 weeks, this focus, the first four weeks, really being on the person and work of God and how we interact in that relationship. And then because we are in God, how do we interact with other people? At the core of this is a relationship. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, right? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, all these people are always trying to get Jesus, they're always trying to trick, trick Jesus. They're always trying to get Jesus to be blasphemous to God. And they come to Jesus and they ask him the question. And they're like, okay, all right, Jesus, out of all of the commandments, which one is the greatest commandment? You guys remember this show down in the desert? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, the first one is, you are to love God with essentially, he's saying everything that you are, heart, soul, mind, strength, body, everything you are, you are to love God. Well, doesn't that sound familiar, friends? It sounds like the first four commandments. They're all about your relationship with God. Jesus says the greatest commandment is then for us to love God. And then second, to do what? To love your neighbor as yourself. So what is Jesus saying? Follow the Ten Commandments. They have not lost their power. Jesus just makes it more simple for a guy that you know went to public school at Franklin. All right, 
He, he, he takes all of those laws and he squeezes them down. He doesn't, they don't lose their potency. They don't lose their purpose. That, but Jesus, once again, gospels them. And he's saying, man, you've got to love God and you've got to love people. And that all originates in this idea of these ten commandments. See, friends, these ten commandments are, are, are part of a greater law system from God. The Ten Commandments are considered to be the moral laws of God. But you need to know this, that with inside of Judaism, in the Old Testament, there just weren't ten. There were actually 613 laws given to the people. But among those laws, there are moral laws, which I would consider, I think a better term is actually relational laws. But then there are civil laws, and there are ceremonial laws. Because you've got to understand that God is also establishing them as a nation, a people. He's developing for them a constitution that you and I are not under because what? We're not a Christian nation. We're not a Christian nation that needs a Christian constitution. All right, We are Christians, but God is establishing us as a nation. Also with that, um, there's, there's all these ceremonial laws that you and I, if you're not a Jew, if you didn't know this, and that's okay if you don't, if you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. Welcome, Gentiles. This is a gathering of the Gentiles. And along with that, there were a placed upon from God certain ceremonies. Like, you got to wash this many times. You, gotta, you can't have uh, clothing that is of mixed fabric. Did anybody check that before you came in here today? Anybody check your tag? Polyester and cotton? Up oh, center. All right. There are all these things within Judaism amongst its civil law and ceremonial law that you and I are no longer required. But when we look at the New Testament and the gospel and the way that Jesus talked about these things, the way that Paul talked about these things, the way that the other New Testament writers talked about these things, they didn't come back to the ceremonial and civil law. What did they come to? They came to the moral law, the relational law of God. See, these Ten Commandments are, are not hardcore enslavement, just oppression upon people. But rather, these laws, these Ten Commandments, are motivated by love, not begrudging duty. They're all about love. If you've been at mission for a long period of time, you've heard this, but you need to write it down again. If you're new to mission, you need to write this one down. And it's this. Rules without a loving relationship always lead to rebellion. And that doesn't matter if it's your boss, or your mom, or your dad, or even God himself. Rules without a loving relationship will always lead to rebellion. Now, families, this means that your child still may do what you've told them to do, but the motivations of their hearts are begrudging duty. So you may get the right action, but if the motivation of their heart isn't a loving relationship, then all you are getting is behavior modification, not the actual transformation of a person. All right? It's about relationship. God is wanting to have a relationship with us as his people. We're his chosen people. If you're in Christ, you've been chosen, selected by him. 
And likewise, we have a responsibility in how we are to interact with other people. Rules without a loving relationship will always lead to rebellion. Sometimes that has outward things, but it is always a condition of the heart. So when we work through these Ten Commandments, what we're going to do each week is pretty much give you the same basic outline. All right? And so in that, here's what we're going to look at. Each week we're going to have these points. That the Ten Commandments give us revelation... All right, they're going to reveal something about God. The second thing is, is that they're going to confront. There's a slide, Anaya. You flip that. Awesome. There's revelation. There's confrontation. There's incarnation, and there's application. All right. So each one, each time that we talk about one of these Ten Commandments, we're going to kind of hit on one of these different points. Because again, it's going to reveal something about God. It's going to confront you. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. It's going to reveal something about us. The next thing is, is that it's going to reveal something about Jesus in this. That the incarnation of Jesus also affects this, and then there's going to be some sort of application for us. So when we look at this passage inside of Exodus chapter 19 and inside of Exodus 20, we, we see something very clearly that this reveals about God. As the commentators say, they say this, that the law reveals the character of the law giver. In Isaiah chapter 45, God himself is going to say, I am God, there is no other. God is going to set himself apart from everything. With these laws, and particularly this law today, have no other gods before me, what it reveals about God is at least these three things. The first thing is this, is that God is holy. God is holy. When we talk about the holiness of God, we're kind of talking about it in two different halves. That first half is this, is that within that first half is that God is saying that he is distinct, that he is separate, that he is unlike any other, that he is unique. We'll often say here at Mission that he is distinctly distinct, like he is uniquely unique. This is God. He is not like anyone else. The second part of that is that God is morally perfect in his holiness. All right? That when God shows up on the scene, different things begin to happen. He begins to transform different things. Things become, again, very distinct from everything else. Inside of this passage, we read in chapter 19, that, that God, in his sovereignty and in his creation, picked out one mountain out of probably hundreds, if not thousands of mountains. And what did he choose for that mountain? That he was going to come in his presence and dwell on that mountain. Could you imagine? All right, I love the Rocky Mountains. I've never been to the Rocky Mountains. I've flown over them several times. I've been on Mount Hood out in Washington in that area. I've been in the, the Portland area, Oregon area, seen some beautiful mountains. Mountains are absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. But there's one thing that the Bible describes about this mountain that is distinct, is it not? This mountain comes thunder on top of it. 
There is, there is clouds among it. It even goes as far as to say, all right, Moses, here's the deal. When my presence comes down specifically, though my presence is generally everywhere, my presence can be specifically, and when it is specifically in a place, then it transforms everything about where I am. There is no, uh, there, there is absolutely, you know that there is something different about this. And this is what God declares about this mountain. Now, God is so holy, he is so morally perfect and righteous, that what does he declare even about the mountain itself? You can't touch it. Man or beast? If you do, you will surely die. Why? Because he is so holy. He's so holy. See, God is to be feared. It is to cause us to tremble as he did these people. Not because he's this scary beast out to get you. He is to be trembling. We are to fear God because he is so good and we are so not. That God is so holy that we can't even be in his presence without doing the whole Indiana Jones and nothing when you come in contact with him. This is the presence of God. He is that good. That's what it's defining. That's what it's revealing uh, about this God, that he is that holy, that he is that good, that he is that set apart. No, there is only one God. There is none like him. This is the presence of God on that mountain. Isn't that remarkable? The second thing that it reveals about God is that there is, again, there is only one God. Look in chapter 20 when he tells us this. I am the Lord, your God. What do we have there? We have relationship. I will be their God and they will be what? My people. That he wants relationship with them. But in that there can only be one God. I am the Lord, your God. We, like God, are to be set apart. We are to be different. You have to understand that historically, and even today, that most religions are polytheistic. There are many gods and goddesses. Well, we've seen this even in, within the Egyptians, right? They had all of these gods and goddesses, and when we worked through the plagues, we saw how that each one of the plagues also represented and destroyed one of the Egyptians' gods. So, so what does God want to show? That he's got control over the fog god and goddess? So what does God do? He sends gazillions amount of frogs to cover everything, and then they die. Right? He wants to destroy one of their main god, God Ra, the, the death burial and resurrection God of the Egyptians. And so what does he do? He sends his wrath to bring death upon the firstborn male child unless they're covered in the blood of the Lamb. So God, in this passage, in, in these passages, he's not only establishing that he is holy, but he is establishing that he is the only God. He wants them to understand that, that these gods don't even exist. See, the Israelites have been in Egypt for so long, friends, that not only did they begin to worship God, but they also worshiped God and all of these Egyptian gods and goddesses. 
if you would ask him, man, do you, do you believe in the God of the Bible? Yes. Sign my name. I'm a card-carrying member. I worship the God of the Bible. Well, do you also worship this God or this goddess? Absolutely. I'm a card-carrying member worshiping that. I mean, some of us who have traveled the world, you'll come across people who will tell you things like this, like, I'm a Buddhist Christian. That sounds really strange to a, a true followers of Jesus. But this was the common practice of the Egyptians, but of also the Israelites. They had become polytheistic, meaning worshipped many gods. And so in this passage, what does he reveal about himself? He reveals, no, there is only one God, and I am your God. All these other gods are idiots. They've been destroyed. I've destroyed them. Did you know that we don't need all ten plagues? God immediately could, could have set the Israelites free. He didn't need any of the plagues, actually. But he did it to teach something very important. Is that God will not share his throne with anything or anyone. He destroys them all. There is only one God. See, he wanted them to know that there are many false gods. But even in our own lives, false gods have real power, don't they? False gods have real power. It did over the Israelites, and it does over you and I as well. The third thing that this reveals about God is this, is that God is the deliverer. Verse Two, I am the Lord your God, relational God. There is only one God, I am Him, who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, the gospel, friends, it begins with God. Salvation, all the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, is not about what the Egyptian, or excuse me, what the Israelites did to accomplish this. It wasn't like they were obedient because we're obedient. I'm like, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life because I am such an obedient person. No, it was God saying, sit back, relax, look at what I'm about to do. I am about to save you. I am about to transform you. I am about to redeem you. And so he's saying to these people, I am your God. You are my people. And he's going to tell them to obey, not simply because he is God, even though that that should be enough for us. But he's also going to simultaneously remind them that obedience is the only correct response when you understand who God is. He is and has the right to place these commandments upon their lives and upon our lives. Why? Because He is God. Imagine just for a moment um, a parent or parents um, who place no rules on the house. All right? We joke around it a lot here, around here. We call those feral children, right? Feral children. You know, it's like this idea is like, you know, we're just going to let our, our, our children self-teach, right? 
So you just let them do whatever, whenever they want to do it. And they'll learn the right way and the wrong way just by being cast out of the net. What do we all call that, though? Terrible parenting. Right? It's a terrible way to parent your kid. They need to be free to make their, their own decisions, all right? Just from the time that they're small until the time that they get old until they, they leave our house, they're just free to do, say, think, wear whatever they want to wear and to do and to think. All of these sorts of things. Why? Because, man, they, they need to learn these things for themselves. No, we, we see over and over again, even from Scripture, but just even practical knowledge, the importance and value of a parental system guiding, leading, protecting, placing boundaries on people. I often describe this all the time, is that these, these commandments, these boundaries are like uh, train tracks, right? As long as that train stays upon those tracks, then that train can see the beauty of the world. It is not the tracks that limit it. It is the tracks that allow for the beauty to be seen. But as soon as that train gets off those tracks, what happens? It comes crashing into your house if you live next to the railroad. There is collateral damage. People lose their lives. Why? Because a beautiful train. I've ridden across countries, literally, through the night on these trains. It's a crazy, crazy experience. But to get off of that is to die. And so God, because He's relational, because He wants a relationship with you, because He wants to have vows with us and covenants with us, because He's trying to show us, man, this is the best way to live, is within these boundaries that He places these things upon our people, and we should be subject to them. Why? Because He is God and we are not. Confrontation. What does this passage reveal about us? Well, let's look at the actual commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. You guys remember Genesis chapter 3, right? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, naked in the garden, not ashamed. They sin against an almighty God. And in that sin, at the very core of it, what are they doing? They're proclaiming, we want to be God. We want to be God. And that's been a problem since our first parents, all even until this very day, on August the 1st of 2021, is that you and I all want to worship other gods, and simultaneously we want to be worshipped ourselves as God. As John Calvin would say, is that, that our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly producing gods and goddesses out of literally anything. Over and over again, we see scripture where, where God prohibits people from, from marrying people that are not the Jewish people. Like in Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11. He tells them, all right, you're about to go into this land, and when you go into this land, here's the deal. I don't want you to marry people from that land. Is God anti-marriage? No, the dude invented it. God isn't anti-marriage. 
But why does he tell the Israelites, hey, I don't want you to marry people who are not in this covenant relationship with me. And, and he tells them in 1 Kings, he says, no, I, I don't want you to do that because they will turn your heart after their gods. I want you to think back, some of you, some of you are there right now. I want you to think back to high school. Now, some of y'all got to like go through that filing cabinet, got to pull out several drawers. <laughs> All right, it's in the it's in the back. <laughs> Blow off the dust, right? Did you ever become like anybody you dated? A lot of people ain't got no business dating somebody. Because they're not mature, spiritually mature enough to handle when they become like them. You see, even in our marriages, you're like your spouse. Man, when Laura and I first got married, woo, my wife, like, sealing the baseboards, cleaned our house every day. I was like, oh, brother, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting, all right? Because the only time my dorm room got clean, when she finally would come in, be like, this place reeks, and she would help me, all right? And then when she, we first got married, I mean, I didn't fold the towels right, I didn't, I, I, I made lots of mistakes, and this way my mama made it, well, Joyce ain't here, I'm Laura. Nice to meet you. I'm your wife. This is the way we do it. All right? Now, 20 years. We celebrated 20 years this past week. Laura has chilled out. She has become more like me. But you know what I've become? Amy, you didn't fold these towels right! is right. It's not the way your mama would do it. I mean, as I'm cleaning things, I'm thinking, is this the way that Laura would do it? Laura would do it. Laura would do it. This, I'm painting the fence, waxing the floor. Is this the way that Laura would do it? Laura would do it. Laura would do it. And even when she's not there, and I'm doing it my way, but if she walks in, oh, I'm back to her way. Because <laughs> this is the way that Laura does it. That's how you stay married for 20 years and actually still like each other. Yes, ma'am. All right? You become like them. Girls who don't like sports or guys who don't like sports and they marry some that really like sports. Oh, man, I love, I love sports. I hate sports, right? Or vice versa. Whatever it is, their likes become, all of a sudden, they become your likes in a healthy relationship. You become like them. And so God is already warning them early on. If, if you're a follower of God and there's a person out here that is not a follower of God, you got no business being anywhere near them. Why? Because they will turn your heart like their God's. There's lots of implications to that. And it reveals that about us. We are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave 
the God I love. Why do you think COVID was so hard? Why do you think that numbers of churches, y'all been, God, God has been gracious to Mission Church. We've grown during COVID. We lost like 30 people. We've gained those people and more back. Praise God, because that's not normal. Why do you think so many churches are really struggling to get their attendance back? It's because a year, people's hearts were turned toward their gods without accountability. They were let loose to go and worship the gods of their own hearts. And they never come back to Him. We're not meant to do this alone, are we? Like, I need you. I need you. It's relationship with God, relationship with others. Love God, love other people. This confronts us because it's saying, God is saying, you're going to have other gods? Don't! It will lead you astray. It confronts our very hearts. Why? Because we become who we have. You know, I mean, parents, again, you're like, I don't know that you should be hanging out with those folks. Why are you saying that? Because you don't want your kids to become like them. My dad used to say to my sister all the time, I can't stand some sassy mouth child. Sassy mouth. <laughs> I can handle a lot of things I can't handle. No back-talking, sassy-mouth child. Right? Parents, you ever been like, have you been hanging around them again? Why? Because you become who you have a relationship with. I want to be around godly people. I feel most comfortable around people who are really godly people. You know why? Because, man, it stirs my affections for Jesus even more. I feel really uncomfortable around ungodly people, though God has called me to what? to minister to ungodly people. We have to do that. Why? Because I feel myself around, when I'm really around a lot of ungodly people, what I start noticing about myself. I start saying some things I probably normally wouldn't say. I probably use some words that, or tell some jokes that I probably wouldn't say. Why? Because I, I want to be cool around these people. I want to be liked around these people. Why? Because you and I, who we rub shoulders with, become we become like them, and they become like us. Your heart, friends, is a temple, sanctuary, church building, if you want to call it, dedicated to something or someone. You and I are always worshiping something. Always. And this is why the first commandment is the first one and the most important. If you obey the first commandment, guess what you will do? You will obey all the rest. I will obey all of the rest. And God knows the condition of my heart. God is saying, only have a relationship with me. Our gods are anything that we love, serve. It's what controls us. I mean, think about this. Take, take this little test. Over the past seven days, where have you spent most of your time, talent, and treasure? Mental space. I've watched a lot of Olympics. 
gotten up really early. Like five something in the morning, me and Laura sitting on the couch. She's got the twisties. <laughs> we got up. <laughs> Poor girl. Got the twisties. Right. Time, talent, treasure. I mean, I want you to really think about that over the last seven days. Is there more God time? Or focusing on your money time? Sports time? Hobby time? Pleasure time? And there is God time? Well, if that's, that's the case then, then God is confronting that those things are our God and not Him. Have no other God. Before me. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus is talking about this, and he says, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money in that case, and we'll cover money in a couple of, uh, about a month or so. See, we live in a culture where many claim to be Christians and yet don't know the holy God, the revealed one of the Bible. And so this is forcing us, it's confronting us this morning to ask the question, do I really know this God? Do I really believe that His word is true? Do I, do I really believe that this is um, the, the, the God. Because a, a lot of times when I tell my college students and I'm ministering on campus, here's what I come to find out. All, most of them claim to be followers of Jesus. Most of them claim to be Christians. But if you were to ask each one of them as I do, then who is that guy? Then none of these people agree. They don't describe him the same. But if you and I really understand that there is only one God, He's the God of the Bible through the personal work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that this Word is the authority, then I should be, on the major things, should be able to ask all of these different people and all of you in this room who claim to be followers of Jesus, and we should all be drawing and describing the same person. But, but that's not what's happening. We do not live in a Christian nation. Most people in America who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, who are claiming to be Christians, we need to wake up to the idea because it could even be us is that we're not this confronts us what do you mean what do you I don't, no the, the scripture who does he say that he is what does he say that he's about I mean here let's let's face it let, let's put it out like this is that the one rule in American lifestyle is this the one rule is this Everyone makes up their own rules, right? And after everyone makes up their own rules, then you have to agree with whatever my rules are. Am I seeing that? Do you know how convoluted, idiotic, like impossible that is? Not only do I get to make up my own rules, but... The last rule of my own rules is that you have to obey all my rules. And if everybody does that, we call that anarchy. It's impossible to be in a relationship like that. And yet that's what this confronts in our own hearts. It's confronting our heart. It reveals something about God, and then it confronts something about you 
and I. I mean, think about how much self-help, trust yourself kind of advice you're given. Trust yourself. Just, Just follow your heart. You do you. Follow your truth. We got wish boards. We got dream boards. We got, I spoke it into existence. I manifested it. All those things reveal we have many gods. Incarnation. What does this reveal about Jesus? Well, Jesus declares about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when he's giving the sermon um, on the mount. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come to uh, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What is Jesus saying? He's saying everything that the law requires, I accomplish it perfectly in the person and work of Jesus. That's why you and I can be New Testament Christians looking back through the lens of the gospel, looking back through the lens of Jesus, and see these big ten, these ten commandments, these ten words to live by, that we can look back them and we can rest in as we pursue to follow them, knowing that our faith and our perfect obedience is not in ours, but in the one who had perfect obedience, and his name is Jesus. That doesn't mean that you and I don't strive to, to, to put all of our other gods to death. It's that the realization that we're now freed up to go and do that. Why? Because Jesus himself has done it. And we are in Christ. And so all of the benefits that have been given to Jesus from God himself, guess where they've been transferred? They've been transferred to you and I. John chapter 14 verse 5 through 6 says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is declaring two different things. Man, again, relational. If you love me, what are you going to do? You're going to obey. I'm going to obey. If I truly love Jesus, then I'm going to obey. This is what Jesus says about the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the imperatives that we see inside of Scripture that are for God's people. Jesus is saying, man, you should be pursuing all of these. Be holy, be set apart, be distinct as God's people in pursuing obedience. Because if you love me, the fruit of salvation is obedience. Not obedience that leads to salvation. But it's because you and I have been saved by God that the only real supernatural response is that Jesus is inside of you, the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and because of that, we are now free to obey. What we once could not do, we can do. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus is declaring even in this passage that, man, I am God. The God that is spoken of had no other God before me. Jesus is saying, I am Him. If you want to be Him, see Him, be around Him, then guess what? You have to come and see me. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus knew that all healthy relationships have rules. All healthy relationships have rules. All healthy relationships have boundaries. Jesus makes, again, us free and able to be able to do this. This is what's beautiful about the incarnation of Jesus. What we couldn't do, we can now do. Lastly, application. So how are we to live in view of this first commandment? Have no other gods 
before me. No other gods. We are to have application then. I think in Luke, I don't think, I know, Luke chapter 6 verse 46, there's this telling verse there where Jesus is looking at a group of people who think they have it all together. If you were to ask them all the baptism questions, they'd probably say, yes, 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 yes. Alright? And he says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What is Jesus saying? See, when Jesus' presence shows up on the mountain, you know He's there. And under the new covenant, when God shows up in your heart, guess what we know? Who's dwelling there? You can say, Lord, He is my Lord. But if He truly is, it's much easier to say it than it is to be it. And Jesus is saying, no, we've got, we got to cut through, we've got to confront again before we can get to the application. We've got to confront the fact that, that you're saying that, that I'm your Savior, you're saying that He is Lord, you're saying there's only one God, but man, you want this God, you want some of me, but you also want some of these other things inside of, of your life. And what is Jesus saying? He's like, I'm not your Lord, because when I'm your Lord, then you delight, you seek out as imperfectly as there are ebbs and flows and all those sorts of things, as you're seeking to be obedient, if you've been freed up to be obedient in Jesus. Yes, there are those ebbs and flows and all those sorts of things, but generally speaking, it was an upward trajectory towards God himself, courtesy of Jesus, because Jesus is inside of you, and it makes no sense as Jesus is sitting here and he knows all things that people would ever call him Lord and not obey him. Mission Church, we've got to be a people who obey if God has made us and rescued us, then the only logical response is to worship Him with all of our lives. As God is distinct, likewise, we are to be distinct. The aim of these commandments isn't moral people. The aim is God. Get this. Behavior modification without heart transformation makes for a great person. Behavior modification without heart transformation makes for a great person who will spend an eternity in hell. Because it's not about, guess what, you cannot steal <laughs> and be a non-Christian. You cannot commit adultery and, and not be a Christian. Because you can't have one more. It's not about just... Uh, a lot of times when, when young parents, they'll, they'll be out of church and they'll have little kids, right? And they want to they bring their kid to church, right? Why? Because they say, well, I want them to be raised right. Well, that's not the church's responsibility. That's your responsibility. It's called parenting. But that's what a lot of young people do. Man, we, they're at an age, we need them to be raised right. We want them to be raised in church. We want them to be good. Isn't that what they say? 
and I don't, I don't mean to, to take this lightly. I want to be very careful, but they can be good and go to hell. Jesus is after your heart. He's after your affections. He's after the motivation of your heart. And if he's truly resting in your life, if he's truly set up shop in the temple that is your heart, then you'll delight in obeying. You will seek to be obedient. And even when you mess up, what are you obeying in? Asking for forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness. Toward him and toward other people. Because love God, love people. Love God, love people. It's better than a t-shirt. It's actually like the Bible. When Jesus saves people, they are a new creation. Jesus changes our wants, our desires, our affections. We want to please God. Why? Because obedience is the supernatural fruit of true salvation. He simply wasn't giving these ten rules knowing that it would be forever impossible for them to to pursue any of them. But he's saying, because I've saved you, which came first, right? Salvation or obedience? Salvation does. Because I've saved, now you can obey. There's this great hymn. It's called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I think it's Isaac Watts. There's this line in that old hymn that says, Love so amazing, so divine, that it demands my soul, my life, my all. When we truly understand the relational component and commands, of God wanting to be in relationship with us and God wanting to be in relationship with others, then the only correct response to Him is for us to do that. It's so divine. It's so, His love for us is so amazing and it's so divine that it demands every, every bit of you and I. Every bit. Not a portion. But all. Let us pray.